fact that we reside in one building that makes us a church. It's the fact that Christ resides in us. That's what makes Christ church, are those that Christ is residing in for those who have repented and believed on Jesus. And so this morning we're going to begin our, our series on church distinctives. And over the, the, really since we started, since our first service together on August 20th as a new church, as Redemption Hill Church, we've been in the book of Acts. And so we've had a few deviations. We, we had an Advent series and we've had a few little tiny uh, deviations from that. But for the most part, we have been walking through the book of Acts. And we, we saw last week on Easter um, in Acts 10, we looked at the gospel of Christ and the availability of his salvation, of Christ's salvation to all those who believe. And ultimately, through the work of the cross, Christ grants us fellowship with his spirit and with his people. And so, with this loving word of God's grace available to all who believe, we felt it was a natural place to take an indefinite break from the book of Acts. I'm not sure how long we're going to take that break, but we felt that this is where God was bringing us and, and, and bringing us to that point in the book of Acts. We'll pick that up somewhere down the road. It could be in a year and a half. It could be 20 years from now. I don't know. That's up to the Lord. Um, so... Um, but where we did believe that God had us was going through and working through our, our church distinctives together. And so you'll notice that uh, up on the screen here in just a moment, we'll take a look here um, at the next slide of our seven distinctives as a church. And one of the things that just happened is I'm going to have to look behind me because it, it, for one reason, it didn't pop up on the back screen for me to be able to see. So if I'm turning around staring at it, my eyesight's not the best. So, um, but... The truth is, is that we have seven distinctives, and the first is a leadership in that it's a shepherd team that leads, and the second is gospel-driven corporate worship, the third is loving sacrificial fellowship, the fourth is intentional gospel outreach, the fifth, family discipleship, the sixth, prayer, and the seventh, simplicity. And the truth is, is none of those are in a hierarchical order. There's seven distinctives but they're not in a hierarchy. It's not that this one lands here. We, we believe that those distinctives are unique to us as Redemption Hill Church and that they are found in the total breadth of Scripture, that Scripture speaks to these things and that these are the things that, that help set us apart as Christ's church. In fact, in the, the, the Webster Dictionary, it describes a distinctive as something that serves to distinguish or to mark as different, and it gives an uncommon or appealing quality. I like that definition. It gives an uncommon or appealing quality. And the truth is, is that these distinctives are the things that distinguish us from other local gatherings of the body of Christ and are the values that we seek to uphold while living out our faith as we walk together as his church. These are the things that we're committed to as well. And so... The first distinctive that we're going to be looking at is actually prayer this morning. And the prayer distinctive, we simply say this, that we seek to foster a culture of persistent spirit-led prayer. Prayer acknowledges our total need for God and that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. 
Therefore, we regularly gather to pray for one another, others, and the ministry of the church. And that we desire for prayer to be a part of our culture, that it's fostered as a part of both our individual life and our body life together. And so this morning, while we can't deal with every aspect of the prayer distinctive, because it's comprised from the total breadth of Scripture, Philippians 4, 4 through 7 specifically addresses the importance of fostering a culture of persistent spirit-led prayer and our total need for God. So let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to go through Philippians 4, and I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 7, but I think the first three verses are important to the context of this passage. And so we're going to look at those just very briefly together. So we're going to read Philippians 4, 1 through 7, and this is what it says. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Rejoice, excuse me, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntax to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, this morning, as we look at your word, and as we look at this distinctive that you have for us, Father, as Redemption Hill Church, Father, I pray that we would see that this is coming from the culture that you desire us to have, one that is seeking you in all things. Father, I pray that our dependence would be on you, and that, Father, we would be encouraged this morning, that we'd be encouraged and challenged, God, to pray in the way that you have shown us here. That, Father, that we wouldn't be anxious for anything, but by in everything we would be praying, we'd be seeking you. Father, this morning, may you take, God, the concerns of our hearts, and, Lord, may we set them at your feet, and, Lord, may it be you who takes them, and God puts them under your feet. Father, give us open hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Father, may we not rob your glory. May it be you who is speaking this morning. May I be diminished and may you be raised up. May we be diminished and may you be raised up. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So looking at that distinctive again, it speaks to the fact that we seek to foster a culture. And if you look on your notes, we're fostering a culture of persistent spirit-led prayer. And that prayer acknowledges our total need for God. So we seek to foster a culture of persistent spirit-led prayer, and prayer acknowledges our total need for God. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on that. We're going to be focusing on the fact that 
Our desire is to foster a culture of prayer. Because prayer acknowledges our total need for God. And prayer has a lot of facets to it. And we know that in Scripture that God is instructing us to pray and to pray unceasingly. But this morning we're going to look at really the way that God lays out that we begin establishing a culture of prayer. And the truth is, is that this passage in Philippians is common and it's, it's one that's often quoted. But without a, an understanding of the context, it actually is easily misunderstood. It's taken apart. It's, it's kind of seen for its pieces and parts, not for its completeness and wholeness. And so in verse 1, Paul states, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, up to this point in the book of Philippians, the first three chapters are dealing with the church in Philippi standing against false teachers, standing against false doctrine, false teachers, and the world coming against the church. In Philippians 4, in chapter 4, things change. Rather than it being the outside influence that's creating kind of this this implosion or desiring to come in and bring this disruption, in Philippians 4, Paul begins talking about, hey, stop worrying necessarily about the outside, but look at the inside too. We want you to stand firm. We want you to be unified. We want you to experience the peace of Christ. And so the statement, stand firm, is at the heart of this passage. It literally means to continue in or to persist. And Paul's saying that we need to remain steadfast in our pursuit of Christ. He's telling them, stand firm. Now what's interesting is is that one of the ways that God will tell us to stand firm is through our prayer life. That prayer is a key part of standing firm in our faith. Now, verse 2 and 3 continues, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, what's going on here is that these were two women inside the, the church of Philippi, and we don't know what they were conflicted about or what they were having conflict over, but what we know is that it, it was it was creating a significant amount of tension and divide within the church at Philippi. What's even more unique about it is that he's urging, Paul is urging the other brothers and sisters to come alongside and say, we're we're here to help you build unity. That unity within the body of Christ is not something that you run away from. Conflict or hurt in the body of Christ is not a place where you run away from but rather you press into and you engage. You deal with it. You work through it. And Paul's making the connection here that there's actually a lack of peace and that this lack of peace is marked by this conflict. And the truth is is that a lack of peace in our own lives as well as with others will prevent us from standing firm in our faith. A lack of peace in our life will prevent us from standing firm in our faith. And so those within the church at Philippi would have experienced this dynamic, a temptation that would have been there that would have led them to potentially take their eyes off of Christ 
It would have been very natural for them to focus on this divide. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that this divide is existing inside of the church? And you see this picture, and then all of a sudden, it shifts from this divide into this instruction to pray. Actually, it's an instruction for praise and prayer. Because God desires us to strengthen our resolve in Christ through prayer to experience his true and intended peace. God desires us to strengthen our resolve in Christ through prayer to experience his true and intended peace. In verse 4 and 5, Paul commands them, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to, to everyone. The Lord is at hand. You see, for those that put their faith in Christ, our salvation in him is not in the things of the world. And we can rejoice always, regardless of our circumstances, because the Lord is at hand. This is what he's pointing out. Notice, the Lord's at hand. He's near. He's close. Rejoice. So we have this picture of Paul instructing the church of Philippi to stand firm. In chapter 1, verse 27, he's already told them to stand firm in the truth. Now he's saying, stand firm in essence in Christ with your love for one another. And then he begins to give us a picture. He begins to give us a picture of a culture that's being established inside that brings a culture where people are beginning to seek God. And he says, they're to rejoice always. And that word always literally means at all times or all occasions. It means exactly what it's saying. In Mark 1, verses 14 through 15, Jesus tells the people to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Whenever we see that phrase, the Lord is at hand or the kingdom of God is at hand, it's a personal challenge to us. Essentially, God's saying, don't delay. The time is now. Do it. You see, in Christ we have nothing to fear, knowing that his plans are for his purposes and our good. So if you can picture this just for a moment, the church at Philippi had just been instructed to stand firm against false teachers, and now it's being instructed to stand firm in Christ as brothers, and they're to help one another maintain unity And we can see that in this, that much of the early church here in Philippi would have been fearful because it seems as if the church is ripping at the seams. That's really what's happening. This is a a split that's powerful enough in the church that these two servants in the church are actually in their divide. In essence, it's having a dividing effect upon the body. And what's amazing here? is yes, they're tasked to come alongside, but then they're tasked with, wait a second, don't just come alongside of them. Where's your focus? Rejoice. Rejoice. Stop worrying about the circumstances. You can imagine, right? I mean, when we're overwhelmed by fear or by situations, where does our focus go? We want to talk about it. We want to talk about it with somebody else. We want to discuss it. We want to sometimes help people understand our perspective so that we're not left alone. And they're instructed to rejoice. They're instructed to rejoice. To rejoice always. To begin praising God. 
It really is this beginning of seeking the Lord. It's a shift in focus, isn't it? When things are ugly, when they're different, when they're confusing, when all of a sudden we're forced to rejoice, you ever been in a situation where you've been challenged to praise God and you're like, what do I praise him for? Right? Life doesn't really feel like it's really worth praising God right now. But it's amazing how quick, how quick as you begin to focus on it, you're exposing your own heart about how easily you've lost sight of who God is. We all do that. We've all experienced that in a moment where our eyes have drifted from the Lord and they've focused on the circumstance, the situation, or the feeling. And so in this immediacy, Paul's challenge is to rejoice and to rejoice always. Why? Because it immediately lifts his eyes from here to here. And then he says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now the Greek word for anxiousness literally refers to the idea of being divided or distracted. That's what it means in Greek. To be divided or distracted. Now, it's important to note that we're still going to have worry or have deep concern over matters, and that's natural. But anything that distracts or divides our focus from the providence and sovereignty of God will prevent us from experiencing his peace and his confidence. When we're anxious, when our focus is on the situation at hand, when we're worried and things are outside of our control, we're being robbed of the peace of God. I believe today that one of the the greatest thing that the enemy brings into our lives are events that create anxiousness and worry. It is one of the greatest things that pulls us away from the Lord. It keeps our eyes on the situation and the circumstance rather than on Jesus. It's interesting, this worry becomes the thing it's meditated on. See, when we're focused on the events and we're distracted and we're divided, what it's saying is this, that where God wants my attention is on Him and rather than meditating on Him, we're meditating on what's going on with us. We've placed our focus on the wrong thing and we've become divided. You ever been around a person who struggles with worry or anxiousness? How about yourself? Do you struggle with worry or anxiousness? It's difficult, isn't it? Because fear begins to rule life. When you walk and you experience that anxiousness and that worry, it even prevents you from being in situations with others. The truth is, is that what he's bringing to bear here is he's saying, listen, the culture needs to not be one of anxiousness, but it needs to be one of prayer. 
It doesn't mean that people aren't going to struggle with anxiety. But it does mean that when they're struggling with anxiety, where do they look to? It doesn't mean that a person's never going to worry again. But it does mean where are they going to find their source of hope? It also means that if anxiousness is the very thing that he's pushing us against, it also means that one of the great answers to anxiousness and worry is prayer. And so often because anxiousness and worry have a physiological response, we focus on the physical rather than on the supernatural, who is God. We, we fail to see at times that this may be the very thing that the enemy uses to stir us up and to draw our focus away. And it doesn't take much, does it? Because our own flesh begins to cry out. And we battle between the flesh and the spirit. Last night as I was preparing this and God just, I'll be spending Saturday nights and, and just kind of reworking, rehashing, looking over my notes. And so last night I got this phone call about six o'clock and it was Ashley and she said, Dad, I'm on the plane. We're leaving Chile here in just a few minutes. Sounds great. So about 6.30, I get another phone call from her, which wasn't good, because at 6.30, she was already supposed to be gone from Chile. And so she calls, and right before that, she sends this text over. She said, Dad, they just turned the whole airplane off, and then they turned it back on and said everything's okay. Is that a problem? <laughs> so her text said. So... I picked up the phone. I didn't even text her back because it wasn't going to probably be anything good. And, and so I get on the phone with her, and she, she goes, Dad, Dad, you, you worked at United. And I said, yeah, yeah, I did, you know. And she said, I, I said, I honestly have no idea. Like, I don't know. I said, but I said, I do know that back in, in, when I worked there, which is a long time ago, the good thing was this plane had been around when I was working there too, was that occasionally you did have to turn them on and restart them to get their systems back up. Just a, it was like a glitchy reset kind of thing, right? But nobody wants to hear that when they're flying 10 hours at nighttime over water, right? <laughs> and you don't want to share that with my daughter. Like, it's all good. It's just a glitch, right? And so the truth was, was as she shared it, what I'm thinking in my head is that would bother me a lot. That's exactly what I was thinking. And so I said to her, I said, yeah, honey, you should be fine. And her words to me were, that's not real sure. <laughs> and so I said, I looked at her and I started laughing. I said, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And she goes, well, I wasn't anxious, but now I am. <laughs> and so we got on the phone and I said, I'll be praying for her and send her on her way. And I got off the phone and all of a sudden it was like, gosh, man, like, Lord, what's going on? Like, and this fear gripped me for her. And immediately the Lord brought and said, what are you preaching tomorrow? Where do you turn? You turn to me. And so I just stopped what I was doing and I prayed. I just prayed for her, acknowledging his lordship over her life and his sovereignty over her life. And it was amazing. The peace of God and just being able to release it and say, God, she's yours. She's yours. That's true for each of us. That we need to remember that anxiousness and worry 
that those responses are designed to pull us and draw our attention away from God rather than to God. And if I can grab that, then even if it's something physiological more than a spiritual, but actually there is something going on with inside of me, I begin to realize that, guess what? Where I go to first is the Lord. It's important because we have a culture that is anxious and worrisome. We have a culture where anxiety runs rampant and joy is gone. As Christ's church, God has called us to exhibit his joy. And when our focus is on our circumstance or on how we're feeling, we're robbed of the joy that God grants through his peace. And so, in the life of the church, there needs to be a culture of peace instead of anxiousness. He says, do not be anxious about anything, and that anything is all things. It's a culture. And ultimately, this anxiousness and fear is combated through a culture of prayer. What's important is that in this idea of seeking the Lord in all things, we have very strong responses in worry and fear. Do we not? And yet, what God is saying is, I want you to come to me with those things rather than focusing on that which you have no power over, of which you are powerless to. See, the word everything here in verse 6 where it says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The word everything speaks of this culture of prayer. The little things we're praying out, the big things we're praying about, whatever it is, we're praying about it. I had a person come to me one time and said, I had no idea that this verse, when it said be anxious for nothing, meant that it wasn't supposed to deal with the, the little worries of life. And I remember talking with him. I said, do you realize that as you worry over every little thing, and this was a family member, that you, know, that you yo-yo with it. Your peace of the Lord goes up and down like a yo-yo. And so there's really no peace because the peace is just a part of the chaos. And peace and chaos don't go hand in hand. Peace is the opposite of chaos. You can have chaos going around you and experience God's peace. But the truth is, is when we go in and out of peace and anxiousness, we're creating that, that chaotic, stirring up that, that, that sense of, of the flesh within us. And so with their focus distracted from God, or potentially distracted from God. Paul's speaking about the peace of Christ becoming absent in their life. And so, by definition, when we come to Christ in prayer, we're actually declaring his lordship over all and his active presence. When we come in prayer, what we're saying is, God, you are even over this. 
And ultimately, prayer acknowledges our need for God and that life itself, our freedoms, and everything we have is a gift from Him. And that our confidence as well as personal peace is in Him, not in our circumstances. It's the reason that Jesus said, find rest in me. Because it was in him that we were going to find peace, not in the things that were taking place. And so, how do we then establish a culture of prayer? Well, the truth is, is that we see this in verse 6. And we see five elements essential to establishing a culture of prayer in our life and the life of Christ's church. The first is this, it says, but in everything. We've heard this word before, always, anything, and everything. We're to go to God regarding all things. We're to go to God regarding all things, trusting he has a plan. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. This is a culture. It's a culture. It's a culture of prayer. Now, I will be really, really forthright with you guys. I struggle with a personal culture of prayer. I would much rather dive into God's word than pray. I'm more naturally bent that way. Now, I used to say that I'm more naturally bent that way. The truth is, is that God's called me to pray unceasingly, which means that in Christ, I have a natural bent towards praying all the time. I've just shut it down because I don't like it as much. That's just the truth. I find it hard for me to pray. And so that's a a discipline that God has had to work on my life and say, listen, I need you praying constantly. It's hard, though. Some people find praying to be very easy. Others find praying not to be easy. Ever pray and fall asleep? (laughs) Ever find yourself repeating yourself over and over and over again? Ever find yourself on the next day praying for the same exact thing you've prayed for all week because you can't think of anything new? For some, prayer can be very hard. And yet, what God says is to go to him about all things. If we're going to him about all things, guess what? We stop running out of things to pray for. In fact, we're actually overwhelmed by the things we can be praying for. Because then all of a sudden, my interaction with somebody at the store today becomes a point of prayer. Uh, somebody's cancer diagnosis becomes a point of prayer. The loving couple that I saw interacting together at a restaurant becomes a point of prayer. God, may you foster that within them. I stop running out of things to be praying for. Because when I'm praying about all things, it opens up a whole new world. For many of us, we pray those things that are right in front of us, and those are the things that land. Those are the things that that are most important to us, and so it doesn't change a whole lot. God calls us to pray for all things. And when we go to God regarding all things, we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, that he is over all things. The second element here is to approach God in worship, not simply in haste. Approach God in worship, not simply in haste. This means that we actually make time for it, and we come with a heart and attitude of worship, of of declaration of who God is, of devotion and adoration. 
remember my life, there was something that was going on, and somebody said, how are you doing? And I said, I, I just don't know. But all I want to do is get into God's word and pray. We need more moments of that in our life. See, I think we can find time to pray, but prayer, because it can be done anywhere, kind of gets the last effort. We find ourselves kind of just doing it in the car as the last thing out the door. Again, not wrong if God's calling to pray unceasingly. But if the only time we pray is when we're busy doing other things, we've missed praying from a worshipful heart. We've missed seeking the Lord with adoration, with joy, going, gosh, Lord, I get to pray. I get to communicate with you. Not that I have to. And so we need to approach him with worship. We need to take time to prepare our hearts. And as with any form of worship, we should allow time to hear from the Lord. We need time that when we're talking with God, that the Lord begins to speak back to us through his word. And our prayer life should not simply be based on the urgency of the moment. The third element is that we need to express a level of urgency and seriousness. We need to plead if appropriate. There are times that we need to plead. God wants us pleading. He wants our hearts surrendered to him. Look what happens in Luke 18, 1 through 8. And I want to encourage you to, to write this down, Luke 18, 1 through 8. And it's important because this word supplication is the word desis, and it literally means the earnest sharing of our needs, this diligent, pushing forward, pressing sharing of our needs with God. Sometimes we, we wonder, does God care if we plead? Yeah, there are times that we are to plead on behalf of others. Luke 18, 1 through 8 says this, And he told them, this is Jesus, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The point was is that he's saying, listen, he's the good father. Keep praying. Don't stop. Plead if you need to. Urge with seriousness. Come to him. One pastor points out, he says, the Lord actually admonishes us to keep on asking and to do so with a degree of urgency. We need to be pleading on behalf of our brothers and sisters. We need to be pleading on behalf of the lost. We need to be praying that God will draw people to himself and make them kingdom laborers for him. The fourth element is that we need to consistently thank God for our present circumstances and past blessings. We need to consistently thank God for our present circumstances and past blessings. 
Do you see what this prayer is doing, this culture of prayer? It's keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, not on the circumstances. See, again, this acknowledges the sovereignty of God, and this is a wonderful reminder of what God has done, as well as keeps our eyes on him rather than ourselves. Regardless of our circumstances, we can thank him for those circumstances. We need to find ways to consistently thank God for our present circumstances and past blessings. This morning, as we were praying together, we get together just together as part of the worship leader this morning and and elders together. And as we were praying, it was interesting because I just shared with you that story about Ashley. I was so encouraged how God continues to just teach and work and reveal himself. And then as we were praying, Kelly this morning prayed and he said, I simply thank you, Lord, for you showing that to Tim last night. How easily it was for me even to be thankful for that. Oh, I was rejoicing over it. But being reminded, I need to thank God for that. Not just rejoice in it, but also, Lord, you are so good. You constantly teach and work us through. And what an awesome thing, isn't it? That we can be thanking God for his continuing work. And guess what? The world doesn't get it. The world does not get how in the middle of tragedy we can be thankful. How in the middle of all those situations that would bring anxiousness and worry, that we can still be thankful. And so a part of that culture of prayer is thankfulness for God. The fifth element, verse 6 says, but in everything let your requests be made known to God. We're to ask God for the desires of our heart according to his will. Ask God for the desires of your heart according to his will. God is sovereign. But there's one downside to a strong doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And that downside is, is that we can just get put into autopilot going, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. And while we know that to be true, God has called us and told us to ask. And we are to ask according to his will. And so some of us may feel like there are certain things that we shouldn't be asking for, but the truth is that we are to ask God for the desires of our heart according to his will. God will meet that stuff out. He will show us, right? He's sovereign. He will show us if it's will or not. But one of the greatest things about prayer is when we are consistently putting something before the Lord, we can know that if it's not turning out the way that we want it to, God's got something better in store. And that better may actually involve some pain and hurt for a little while. But what a confidence that comes when we seek him and he's continuing to fulfill his will. He's reminding us that he is sovereign, that he knows what is best. In Matthew 18, 19 through 20, and this passage is dealing about the the aspect of a brother or sister being disciplined, but it says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. 
Well, I think we can take that verse and we can actually apply it to prayer as well. We can come in to say the same thing, that God is still at work and his spirit is still at work. And that God desires to do that work, not simply through individual prayer, but through the gathering of the body of Christ. Because when the gathering of the body of Christ is seeking him on his behalf, he is present. And his petitions, the petitions that we are giving are heard. So what's the essential truth? It's that a culture of prayer produces godly peace, entrusting our cares to him and his power. A culture of prayer produces godly peace, entrusting our cares to him and his power. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. What comes as we develop a culture of prayer? What comes over the body of Christ, us as individuals, and us collectively as the body? It's this peace that is indescribable and incomprehensible. John Balford puts it this way. He said, This surpassing peace then is beyond human comprehension or anything that the mind could conceive of by itself. It is superhuman rather than purely psychological and is unexplainable by natural forces. There is a power in a church that has a distinctive and is marked by a culture of prayer. And that distinctive can't be something that's simply stated. It has to be something that's lived out. And that's our hope as Redemption Hill Church, that we are a church that is marked by a culture of prayer. As we conclude this morning, I want to just leave us with this prayer. And this prayer was actually given by George Washington in 1789 in his Thanksgiving proclamation. But I love it because it encompasses everything of this verse. He says simply this, May then... May then, too, we unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or in private, to perform our several and relative duties properly. I love that. God has called us to seek him in all things. And all things include everything that is before us and everything that is around him. May we be a church that not only says it has a distinctive of prayer, but may our culture develop and grow into a culture that is marked by prayer so that we might go first to the Lord and rest in his peace rather than in the worry of the world. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that we can look at this distinctive and know that you are calling us, Father, to a culture of prayer. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the work that you've done through the cross, the fact that you have given peace to all those who believe. Lord, your desire is for man to be at peace with you. So, Lord, may we truly be at peace with you through the work of the cross. And, Father, may we seek you in all things, knowing that you are sovereign. And, Father, may we be a church that lives out this culture of prayer. And I ask this in your name. Amen.